Welcome back to the Orthodox West Gazette, a miscellany of talks, interviews, ponderings, and presentations. I'm Stephen Brannan, and I'm joined again by Father Patrick Cardine to talk about all things Advent. The season of Advent in the Western tradition is so special for so many reasons, and we'll be talking about many of those reasons today. The music you're hearing right now is the chant, Rorate Celli, or Drop Down Ye Heavens. It's the entrance chant for the fourth Sunday in Advent and for the votive masses of the Blessed Virgin Mary throughout Advent, and was recorded by the choir at Father Patrick's parish. Their albums are available at their website, and we'll include a link in the show notes to those. Let's get to the conversation. Father Patrick, thank you so much for joining me again to talk about Advent this time. Well, it is my pleasure, and I appreciate you putting this together. Yeah, it's been quite a while since uh, we've uh, done a a podcast for the Orthodox West, and we're certainly overdue. And um, I can't think of a better way to sort of kick off again uh, as sort of a restart than by talking about the season of Advent, which is our liturgical restart. Yeah, it's the beginning of our our church here in the West. And so that makes a lot of sense. We kind of kick things off again with this. It does. Um, it's a fascinating season. It is. I, it's my favorite season of of the church year. There are so many interesting and uh, uniquely particular aspects about Advent that set it apart from all the other seasons of the church year. And uh, it's just sort of from an aesthetic place, I find it quite magical and uh, compelling. So I'm excited to talk about this and to to hear what you have to share with us about it. Sure, I'm I'm excited about it too. I love the season of Advent, and every year that you walk through the season, um, it just captures your heart. I thought it might be helpful to um, maybe do a little historical overview of the development of the season to get started. I think that would be great. So. Um, you know, as, as you mentioned, Advent is <clears throat> historically, it's, it's quite frankly a little convoluted how it developed. Um, it is a season of preparation uh, for the Christmas feast, the nativity of our Lord. And so I think that it's important maybe as we get started in this conversation that we look at how the nativity of Christ came to be celebrated on December 25th, because that event, the church moving the celebration of Christ's nativity to December 25th is really what was the impetus for the season of uh, Advent to be developed. Um, In a a sermon that I'm going to quote momentarily, St. John Chrysostom says that the tradition of Christ's birth on December 25th was, quote, known from the beginning in the West. It's very Hmm. interesting. Um, He says it's of apostolic origin in the West, but the Eastern Church was not as familiar with this tradition. Um, So for whatever reason, uh, the celebration of Christ's birth wasn't kept uh, on December 25th uh, until a few centuries later. In in the East, it was commemorated on January 6th, uh, but it was basically tacked on to the feast of his baptism. The the, the baptism on January 6th, the Epiphany, um, was really the primary celebration And then along with it, they also included uh, the Nativity of Our Lord. Um, In the West, January 6th was also 
uh, a major feast, um, sort of adopted from the East. But the emphasis in the West for January 6th was on the commemoration of the, the Magi kings. And this is still the case as we celebrate the liturgy today. That's still our emphasis on the 6th. The baptism for us in the Western liturgical calendar is still part of the Epiphany theme, uh, but it's celebrated on the octave day of the Epiphany. So we still get the same theme, but the 6th is really the, the day of the um, we have a, uh, we, we should probably record a, a podcast about epiphany when we get closer to that. Uh, that's also a very rich season. Um, like you said, there's, there's the, the theme of baptism on the octave. The primary theme is of the Magi. There's also the theme of the first miracle, the wedding at Cana. And, uh, it's, it's fascinating how all of those themes are intertwined. Um, I, I think it's, uh, just incredibly intriguing the way the church in the Western tradition handles that. So I would love to talk about that more in depth uh, later. I think that's a good idea for a preacher, for the, for the priest of the church preaching on these themes is very um, enjoyable. I mean, it's, it's a great season uh, to preach on these, these themes of Christ's theophany, his epiphany, his coming into the world, light to the world, to the Gentiles um, and and all of that. So yeah, that, that sounds like a great idea. Um, you know, we don't really know if, if the West understood or this tradition of Christ's birth, um, in the West was ancient, according to St. John Chrysostom, why, um, why his nativity wasn't celebrated earlier. It's still very early, by the way, very early, which we'll get to in just a minute, but why not earlier? Um, you know, Origen made some criticisms about the pagans celebrating birthdays, and he was like, we don't do that. That's a pagan thing to do. Mm -hmm. Um, So maybe there was some initial reticence to have a separate feast day for the Lord's birthday because of an association problem. Uh, That did happen in early Christianity. There were things that the early church was uh, a little reticent to do because of the association with paganism that later when that there was no danger of that association any longer, um, they went ahead and did. Uh, so who mm-hmm. knows? That, that could explain part of why it took a little while. But at any rate, the West was celebrating the nativity of our Lord at least as early as 336. So uh, we know that for sure um, on, on December 25th. So the, the date of December 25th is a separate feast for Christmas was as early as 336. About 50 years later, in um, 386, uh, St. John Chrysostom preaches a sermon in Antioch. And the sermon happens to be, he preaches this on December 20th. And in the sermon, he's admonishing his flock um, to prepare over the next five days for the feast of the nativity that's going to be on December 20th. They are somewhat familiar with this idea, but not com- it hasn't completely taken root all across the East yet by any stretch of the imagination. Um, he says to his flock that this tradition has come from the Western church to the East um, a few years earlier, uh, not quite 10 years. So maybe around 379 or so, the East adopts and receives this um, date of December 25th for Christmas. So I'll read you a brief quote from this sermon, which I think is interesting. He says, quote, Although it is not yet the tenth year since this day became clear and familiar to us, through your zeal it has now flourished 
as though it was given from the beginning many years ago. Because of this, one would not be far wrong in saying that it is both new and old. New because it has only recently been made known to you. Old and venerable because it has swiftly become similar in stature to days long recognized, and it feels as though it is of similar age to the world. This day, speaking of course of December 25th, this day was known from the beginning to those in the West. Now it has been brought to us and has swiftly shot up, bearing such fruit as you now see, the precincts full and the church packed with a crowd who have gathered together. So that's an explicitly clear reference in this sermon to the people who have gathered on December 20th to prepare for Christmas on December 25th. Um, that, he, that's incredible. Yeah, yeah. It's uh, what, um, what? So uh, is that is that sermon? Is there a reference? Um, yeah. So it's. Could... I don't think the whole sermon has been translated. Actually, okay. I'm okay. not sure. I I would, but I will try and get that posted. Um, but this is his sermon on the date of Christmas, and um, I have to look at the publisher where I got this from. Uh, but I'll try and post okay. that a little bit. Try to do a little research yeah. and, and find that. Yeah, those are those are incredible words. Um, I love hearing the words of Saint John Chrysostom talking about the way a feast feels. Um, that's you know, it's. I mean, that's that's incredible. Like just to to comment on a feast feeling old because it just is. It's just right. It's just correct to yeah. observe this. Yeah, yeah. That's I, mm. I, it's very striking. He, one, one little addition here, he goes on to say, quote, you want, of course, to hear about this day. Well, I know that many are still debating with each other about it, some arguing yeah. against, some for. Everywhere, there is a lot of conversation about this day, some saying accusedly that the day is a new innovation, which has only recently been introduced, while others contend that it is ancient and venerable. And then he goes on in his sermon to provide three convincing arguments for the validity and the antiquity of December 25th being the proper date for Christ's birth and the Feast of the Nativity. Um, those are pretty Well, that's pretty remarkable. Uh, yeah. yeah. Uh, especially, you know, as this, this is a perennial thing, we're 1700-ish, 16-something hundred years later, and we're still talking about the origins of the Feast of Christmas. So yeah, this and is people the, are people are saying that that it was a pagan feast and that sort of thing. Right, right. Very um, interesting. So, so by the end of the fourth century, the emperors um, Theodos uh, Theodosius and Valentinian they issued an edict that the nativity of Christ and the Epiphany of our Lord should be celebrated as two distinct feasts. So this hmm. came from the top down by the end of the fourth century. Um, interestingly, though. Alexandria didn't adopt the feast till about 432. Um, so the West, it was, what, 336. In the East, it was around 380-ish, 389, somewhere in there. In Alexandria, 432. In Jerusalem, it was 100 years later from that. It was in the, you know, 530s. Um, mm. And then the Armenians are the only um, ancient body to have never moved the feast, and they continue to celebrate it on Arminians. Interesting. So it, oh. it, it really, that sounds like a West, an Eastern movement from, from the West. Yeah. Sounds like a, a tradition that was preserved. 
in the West and, and would have moved eastward first to the Imperial capital and then took a while to spread elsewhere. Yep, exactly. Hmm. Um, so basically, once the feast was firmly established on the 25th of December, it was only natural for the church to set aside a season of preparation. Um, you know, that's what we do. We always prepare for things. We even prepare to prepare. Um, right. Seasons of preparation for seasons of preparation. Just like we have Lent for Pascha, basically this this season before Christmas became like a little Lent and a little yes. mini Lent for Christmas. And um, so as, as early as about 480, uh, St. Perpetus, uh, who was the sixth bishop of Tours in France, he decreed that everyone should fast three days of week, so Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. He decreed a fast Monday, Wednesday, and Friday from St. Martin's Day, which is November 11th, up until Christmas. So he institutes this fast. Now, it doesn't begin until the day after St. Martin's Day, but it, it's, it's said to be from St. Martin's Day to Christmas. He institutes a three-day fast every week uh, from St. Martin's, about six weeks. Um, okay. So St. Martin just also happened to be uh, the third bishop of Tours, France. So that's his hometown. Um, and this three-day fasting rule was then later um, reaffirmed and confirmed at the Council of Macon in 580. So that's what we do to this very day in the Western Rite, uh, in our vicariate. Uh, through the season of Advent, we practice this very ancient um, fast. It's a mini fast. It's not quite as severe as, as Holy Lent, uh, fasting on uh, Mondays, Wednesdays, and Fridays throughout the season. Yeah, yeah. Maybe maybe you can talk a little bit about some of the because you've uh, already drawn the comparison between Lent and Advent. Now, um, maybe some some things that sort of uh, set it apart from from Advent. I mean, it sounds like Advent is um, so. I guess Christmas would be, and I know it's called in the in the East popularly sometimes the the winter Pascha. And um, so it it sort of serves Christmas does as a pivot point in the calendar in winter, like Pascha does in the spring, and so it's got correspondingly a season of fasting, but it's not as long in the West anyway, and it's not as severe. So instead of six days a week of fasting, it's three days a week, right? And instead of what three weeks of pre-Linton season? Is there is there such thing as a pre-Advent? Yes. So, um, in in terms of pre-Advent, uh, there there is and there isn't. There isn't. We don't have a formal pre-Advent season on the calendar like we do for Lent, which is called Septuagesimatide. But in in a way, and I'll get to this momentarily, there is sort of an informal pre-Advent season. Um, and, and so we'll talk about that in just, just a minute. You did mention about, um, I think something that would be helpful in sort of understanding the calendar is, um, bringing up St. Martin's day, uh, mm -hmm. because this became St. Martin's day became a very important marker, like a, like a watershed saint's day that marked the beginning of Advent. And it, be, it became a very important feast day in the, in the medieval times, a, a great day of rejoicing at. Um, so we have sort of two cycles in the liturgical calendar. There's the temporal cycle and the sanctoral cycle. 
sanctoral cycle is um, basically marking the feast days of saints. So, you know, whoever, Saint Swithin mm-hmm. in the Swamp is on February 14th, whoever. Um, and, and, and that has little to do with the seasons of the year. It's just when that saint went on to glory, that's their birthday into heaven, or relics were translated or something. The temporal cycle is 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 the season the, the seasons of the liturgical year. So Christmas, Lent, Epiphany, Ascension, Pentecost, Pascha. And so the calendar cycle of the temporal um, reflects these different seasons. Well, St. Martin's is on the sanctoral calendar. It's his feast day. But interestingly, he becomes associated with a season because it's on his feast day that marks the beginning of the Christmas season with, mm. with Advent um, on November 11th. And also, by the way, happens to be my, I'm great, very grateful, my ordination um, anniversary is November 11th. So, it's always nice to have that coincide. Um, yes. But St. Martin's Day comes to be associated more than just a date on the sanctoral calendar. Um, it, it comes to be associated with the season of preparation for Christmas. And it gets all these nicknames, uh, which is fairly common. I don't know how it works in the East, but in the West, there's lots of nicknames uh, for things like this. So, you know, it's, it's called St. Martin's Day, but we also call it Martin Mass. Like we have Mickle Mass. Uh, and we have candle mass. Well, this is Martin mass. Christmas. Christmas, right? This is Martin mass, but it is okay. also called Saint Martin's Lent. Okay, and and probably the oldest name is Quadragesima Sancti Martini, which is the oh, forty wow. days fast of Saint Martin. That's it's really that's what it was called um, early on. Quadragesima Sancti Martini, the forty day fast of Saint Martin. In reality, it's 43 days, but the church doesn't get too fastidious about exact numbers, you know, in a sure. case like this. They just sort of round it off, at, you know, symbolic 40 number. Um, but because St. Martin's Day is the last day before the fast begins, it becomes this huge, you know, day of celebration and feasting. And um, it's it's basically the Mardi Gras um, of Advent. <laughs> so... It's it's what Shrove Tuesday and um, Carnival, what we think of as Mardi Gras, the day right, before right. Ash Wednesday, St. Martin's Day becomes this big feast. And um, it also coincides with, you know, the, the harvest, the fall harvest, and there's the Thanksgiving for all the bounty that comes in. And in medieval times, they always had a, you know, a really big, lots of festivities, um, lots of food, and and they had the traditional uh, roast goose. So this year I wasn't able to get the goose, but next year I'm I'm bound and determined to roast a goose on Saint Martin. Uh, <laughs> so I'm, I'm already thinking about it. Uh, the, by the way, the reason they would roast the, the, the association between Saint Martin um, and the goose is that there was this tradition that the faithful were bound and determined that Martin was going to be made against his will. He, he did not want to be made a bishop. And made so a bishop. Okay, yeah. they, they came after him. They came to get him, to drag him to the church, to make him a bishop. And he took off and hid. And he was hiding in a barn that was filled with geese. And he was down there hiding with the geese. The people were looking around. And basically, um, apparently, the geese were on the side of the people because the geese started honking <laughs> and gave poor Martin away. And he was found out. And his fate was sealed. And, and he was made one of the great, great bishops of the church. 
Um, we at St. Patrick's this year, we spent a fair amount of time and energy and uh, attention on St. Martin. And I think everybody really enjoyed learning a lot about him. He was um, really the, the really the father of Western monasticism in a lot of ways. Founded yeah. two monasteries um, before St. Benedict ever came along. And um, when St. Benedict came along, his monasteries were still um, functioning and they became Benedictine monasteries. The major church at Monte Cassino and St. Benedict's uh, m- monastery that he founded, uh, the, the church was dedicated to St. Martin. Oh, fascinating. And so Benedict and his monks prayed there in the church near an altar dedicated to St. Martin. That's oh. awesome. There's a, there's a, an association, an important uh, debt we English speakers owe to St. Martin as well, because the oldest church in the English speaking world is also dedicated to St. Martin. Yeah. It was the church that um, uh, the, the Christian wife, the queen in uh, Kent uh, worshiped at while everyone else in the land was pagan. And when St. Augustine came from Rome with his monks and missionaries, that was the the church that they had their home base in. So English Christianity uh, basically began at an altar dedicated to St. Martin. So, uh, Yeah, he, he's a wonderful, wonderful saint. And, and we think of him as a soldier because, you know, all of his, the iconography with him is of him as a soldier cutting his robe in half and giving it to the beggar. Uh, right. And he was for a short time. But he really made his mark as a monastic and a ascetic. Mm. Um, so later on so but at any rate this martin saint martin fast right so it's it's known as the saint martin fast. uh but it's not called advent we haven't you know it doesn't become called at doesn't it isn't called advent for centuries later um right it's the saint martin's fast and we know it's a very distinct season early on we have numerous sunday sermons from the fathers that are basically seasonal like their sermon series just like you'd have today, you know, preacher sure. comes up and he's going to preach the next four weeks on a certain series. So we have these sermon series. And um, interestingly, in um, in the middle of the ninth century, about 846, there was a legislative act from Charles the King, um, the, uh, the Ball, uh, Charles the King, and he, he made this legislative act and the bishops responded to this act and warned and admonished him that he must not call them away from their churches during Advent because they had all these special duties to perform. It was a special season. They had responsibilities. And then they said, especially because we've got to preach our Advent sermons. <laughs> so they, they, were, they were like, you can't call us away for some you know, made-up state purposes because we, we're, we're in the middle of our Advent series, sermon um, during this season. So that was, that was kind of um, but it, the other thing about Advent, if you go to do a historical study of the development of the season, it's going to be a little frustrating because it, it took a while for it to become uniform across the board right. in different countries. You know, it was in France, Germany, Spain, Italy, went up into Britain. Um, but it still had its sort of local traditions um, and, and local expressions, including how the fasting guidelines worked and regulations worked. But eventually, and still pretty early, by the 800s, um, the fast was shortened from six weeks down to four weeks. And that's what we have today. So our tradition today, um, you know, of having the four Sunday, the four weeks before Christmas as Advent, 
is still pretty ancient. Um, it eventually, though, for I don't know the reason, but it eventually got shortened from six to four years. Sure, certainly and, it was it was pretty universal in the West in, in the um, first millennium, eight hundreds or so. Yeah, it became pretty universalized. Yes, yes, it okay. got pretty. Yeah. It was pretty solid by the eight, by, by the ninth century um, across the board. So, um, so no longer does it begin on November eleventh, Martin Mass, but I. You know, this year we talked about this at St. Patrick's, and this would just be informal. It's not sort of on our calendar. But I think that we could begin to think about Advent, sort of that season. If we make a big deal at our local church about the Feast of St. Martin, as we do at at St. Patrick's, um, we can begin to think about this as gearing ourselves up for. And, you know, some people may even choose to, you know, adopt some voluntary restrictions, just like Mm -hmm. we do. Lent and Septuagesimatai um, to sort of ease into the Advent fast. But um, at any rate, it's it's a great feast and it yeah. helps us to get ready for, for the coming of Advent. But essentially now, what we have now is Advent begins on the closest, this is the rule, if you're always trying to figure it out, Advent begins on the closest Sunday, whether it's before or after St. Andrew's Day, which is November 3rd. So whatever's closest to no- whatever Sunday is the closest to November thirtieth. That's that's the first Sunday of Advent. Okay. And then we have four, and there's four always Sundays. going to be four. Always Given that rule, there's Sundays. always going to be four. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Always four Sundays in Advent. Um. So that's a little bit of the you know without getting into the weeds about some of the development because it gets very complicated. Um. You know what was going on where what uh, that gives us a little bit of a background about this season um and but but it was definitely a very distinct defined uh revered season in the church from very early on that that's that much is clear so that being the case what about the season made it so distinct and and revered uh, both in terms of ancient practice and current practice well um yeah, so let's let's say what is Advent about? I mean, what's its theme? What's its what's being communicated to us? What's the purpose of Advent? I mean, why did the church institute the season? What are the what are the themes of the prayers, the readings on these Sundays? Um, let's try and address that a little bit. Um, when somebody first, if they don't know anything about Advent, they start looking at it to begin with. Um, they're gonna they're gonna pick up at first maybe a little bit of dissonance. Um, because there are conflicting moods <laughs> and even conflicting readings and things. At first, it's, it seems a little dissonant. There's these conflicting moods of the season. So on the one hand, it's penitential, right? So this is communicated to us liturgically. We're in purple, as we've said in past times. The, the colors in the Western uh, tradition are a little bit more prescribed than they are in the East. Um, so we're, we're in violet uh, or purple. Um, during this season, which means it's a penitential season, the Gloria um, in the in the Mass is omitted. Of course, we're going to hear the Gloria at the birth of Christ, or you know, um, that's where it comes from, or at least portion of it. Right. right. Um, so the Gloria is omitted. The deacon and the subdeacon, they don't wear their normal vestments. So normally they'd be in dalmatic and tunical, but they're not in dalmatic and tunical, which is to sort of um, show the more somber penitential mood. And so they wear a different vestment, which is called a folded chasuble. 
Um, the reading, which we'll go over here in just a moment, uh, the readings for Sunday Masses are quite common, especially the first two um, in the beginning. And they focus on the terrifying day of judgment um, and, and all of this. And then, of course, on, on top of all of that, there's the fast itself. So in an emphasis on repentance, you know, preparing for the, the judgment. So the, the season has a mood of, of sober, somber, penitential, repentant, you know, fasting and all of that. But on the other hand, <laughs> throughout the season, there is this undercurrent, this restrained joy, which you just feel it like lurking below the surface, right? You can, yeah. you can feel this rumble of joy throughout the season. It never goes full bore penitent like you do in Lent. Right. It, it's, it's just there's this mix. There's this always this sense of anticipation um, of the Savior's birth and our redemption. Um, one thing is important to note, you know, for those in the Eastern Rite who may be listening, they won't really appreciate this without experiencing it. But for Lent, we, we bury the Alleluia. So we, we actually have a little ceremony, which is very cute and wonderful. We take an actual Alleluia banner out um, right before Lent begins, and we literally bury it out under yeah. the ground. Uh, and we do not say Alleluia throughout Lent. But in, in Advent, the Lent, Alleluia is not buried. Okay. So now, and this isn't just a, uh, the word is omitted from where we might have just normally slotted it in. When we say we omit the Alleluia, it means there is a part of our service of every mass that is prescribed that is an Alleluia. It's, yeah. it's sung. There are three Alleluias. There's a verse that goes with it. And that is a prescribed part. And it, it's, you you hear it through the majority of the year. So during Lent, when it is omitted, it's pretty conspicuous. Like it's noticeable that like, where's the Alleluia? Yeah, <laughs> so no. it's not just that we happen not to say any Alleluias anywhere. It's that Alleluias are omitted everywhere, but also that specific part of the Mass is is omitted during Lent, and that that makes quite an impression. It does, and that and and that's what I was trying to get at. When you know, if somebody hasn't experienced that, they they may not realize how much of an impression it makes. That is one of the major experiences we have, even emotionally, psychologically, the omission of that, that ju jubilant uh, word of Alleluia. Um, so I, I said a moment ago that maybe somebody might think there's this distance going on here in, at first in Advent. But, but that's not really true. It's not a distance once you've tasted it, okay? Once you've walked through the cycle, you know, a few years maybe. Um, it only appears that way at the beginning, but I want to use the metaphor of, of food and like a recipe, you know, and um, ingredients in, in different dishes. Once you've tasted uh, Advent, um, it's more like this balance of sweet and sour that you get sometimes in, in Asian dishes um, mm. or what's become very popular, salty and sweet. Put, put right. um, kosher salt on my ice cream. Um, <laughs> I love salty and sweet. But you, you mix this sweet and sour, this saltiness, and that's what's going on. And it actually all makes sense. It becomes really a, a very beautiful experience um, in a complex part of kind of like this dance between repentance and penitence and anticipatory joy. 
And, and the other thing that happens is it's dynamic through the season. It changes. So the season yes. begins with a really ominous, I mean, it's pretty heavy duty. First two lessons are, are hardcore on the judgment and the terror of the last judgment. But so it begins with tears and, and, and this terrible judgment, but it slowly moves towards the anticipation of joy. By the third Sunday, we're at Gaudate Sunday, which is the Sunday of praise. And, you know, the church wants to give us a little bit of a break. So the vestments go from violet to rose color just for that one Sunday to lighten the mood. Of it. Um, and, and, and then we just as we draw closer to Christmas, um, the joy starts to emerge and begin to come to the fore. And the, the sort of sorrow and repentance and penitence begins to recede into the background. Um, there's a there's an interesting um, liturgical uh, turning of a, a corner that happens on that third Sunday in Advent during matins when we sing the invitatory. For the first two Sundays, the invitatory antiphon is the Lord, the King that is to come, O come, mm-hmm. let us worship. And then it becomes the Lord is now at hand, yeah. O come, let us worship. That's a great, great and so yeah. even the, the liturgics are telling us it's getting close. Yeah, well... <laughs> In just a minute, I, I want to talk a little bit about some of the themes of, of, of Advent and sort of spiritual themes. But um, in a minute, I'm going to go over the the readings for some of the masses. And when we get to the vigil um, on Christmas Eve, it, it's extraordinary. You know, we'll see this really like we just we can't hold back any longer um, at the vigil. mass. Um, and th- this is not this is an ad vigil mass. Is an Advent. We're not at Christmas. Right. Um, we're still right. in per- we're still in violence. <laughs> we're still fat. It's a day of fasting. Um, but we're just like it's the joy is like leaking out. It's like squeezing out at the se- seams everywhere, uh, and it can't be held in. And um, so, so the word Adventist, most people probably know, it means coming. And um, many preachers over the centuries, of course, have uh, have preached about three ways that Christ comes. So there's like. There's these three emphasis, these emphasis on three ways of Christ's coming. First emphasis is his coming into the world in the incarnate, in his nativity. Secondly, the emphasis is on his coming into our hearts through the Spirit in this age. And much of the preaching centers on Christ being born in us as he was born in the Blessed Virgin. Um, and finally, his the last way of coming is him coming in judgment at the end of the age. But what you get with all three of these is you get uh, an emphasis in this season, Adventist, the Lord is coming, is that we need to prepare. We need to get ready, right? We need to we need to get ourselves ready for his coming in the nativity. We need to get ready for his coming into our hearts just as we imitate our blessed mother in her fiat and we say, "Yes, God, come into me, be born in me." And then we really need to be ready uh, for a good and holy death so that we're ready to face uh, the reckoning, you know, and, and the judgment. Um, so we might ask, we might ask, how is it that I'm supposed to prepare for his incarnation when he's already been made incarnate? <laughs> right? Um, you know, question? so this has already happened in, in, in time. Uh, well, this is very important. It shouldn't be difficult for Orthodox people, I think, to, to grasp this. It's so so much a part of our our understanding of things. 
but but the salvific acts of God in history, um, these things that God has done among men as man um, and through the Spirit, these events, these acts of redemption, these things are not locked in history, okay? Yes, they happened at a point in time, they happened in a place and in a time, but they're not locked there. They transcend history, and they are existentially present to us through the Spirit. I mean, we understand this clearly when we're thinking about Christ's sacrifice on the cross. Christ's sacrifice on the cross is ever-present before God. His offering is, is, is present before God on the heavenly altar. We clearly understand that. You know, that's why, you know, some, sometimes Protestants will say, why do, you, why do you have a crucifix with Jesus on the cross? You know he's not still on that cross. And we're just like, <laughs> like how do I like, try and communicate right. to you like right. how this works? Um, yes. But, but, you know, Christ's sacrifice is always present. And just because Jesus, and this goes for his nativity, just because Christ is the great monarch, right? He's, he's crowned in heaven, sitting on a throne, scepter in hand. But at the same time, he is still the holy babe in the manger at the same time. Yeah. We're not past that any more than we're past his crucifixion. As long as we're in this age, I don't know about the age to come, but as long as we're in this age, he is going to be all of these things to us presently existential. And, you know, a few years ago, I sort of knew this, you know, I mean, as a concept. I knew this for a long time, made sense to me as a concept. But a few years ago, it, it just really came home to me um, through the Christmas season and Advent and some of the sermons I was preparing. And, and particularly on a Christmas Eve, um, this came home to me that I still relate to my Savior as a holy babe. Hmm. And, and this happened to me sort of you know, in a profound way. We have this beautiful tradition um, at the conclusion of the first Christmas Mass, because we have three Christmas Masses. So at the conclusion of the first Christmas Mass, you know, the Mass of Midnight, um, we take the little Bambina, is a little sculpture of the Holy Child, Christ. And we he's, he's resting on, you know, some beautiful cushion or something. And we go in procession with candles and a canopy and the whole bit, and we go in procession to the crash. So we've set the crash up somewhere in the church, uh, the nativity scene. And of course, Jesus isn't in the crash yet um, until this moment. So at the end of Mass, the Christ child has been born, and we take the Holy Bambino and we place, place him there in this nativity scene with the shepherds and the animals mother and with Joseph and there's a kneeler there and we place him there and we kneel and there are devotional prayers that we say and then there are um, these prayers when visiting the crash that uh, the faithful come and say throughout the Christmas season we leave the kneeler up and people come and they can pray there before the crash and doing that year after year um, it was through it wasn't an abstract kind of conceptual I was praying there before the crash, after I had placed, gingerly placed, you know, this little form of the holy child there in that nativity scene. And it just struck me 
how my relationship to my Savior is not just as the monarch, but I relate to him as my shepherd. I relate to him in all these ways, my teacher, but I also relate to him as a holy baby. Yeah, we, um, and so the Advent season is uh, partly a preparation to meet Christ our God in that form, yeah. in the form of a baby. Yeah, exactly. And, and as Orthodox, you know, we understand that, um, we understand that he's our crucified Lord. He's our, he's the great teacher. You know, he's the great shepherd. He's all of these things. He's the aesthetic, but he's also the holy babe. Right. As so, Revelation 13, 8 affirms that Christ was slain from the foundation of the world, um, it only makes perfect sense to also affirm that he was laid in a manger from the foundation of the world. Yeah. Yeah. That's right. So Advent, you know, it's really about preparing for the Lord's coming in all these various ways. And <clears throat> there's another, I think, um, really poignant, um, poignant thing to think about um, in terms of our expectation of God's coming. Um, you know, if you go back to the book of Genesis, the very beginning of our very sad story, after Adam and the woman sinned, uh, we read about how they hid from God. <laughs> you know, they would hear him coming for his walk with them in the pool of the day. Well, on this day, uh, they were hiding from God in the bushes because they were ashamed, they had guilty conscience, but most importantly, they were terrified. They were scared. And God was coming to them. And um, they didn't want his coming. They didn't want him to come because they were afraid and they were terrified. That's the beginning of our sad story. Well, fast forward to the very end of the Bible. This, the second, I think it's the second to last verse in the entire canonical scripture <laughs> in the book of John's Apocalypse. And the verse, the, this is the creed of the early church. The creed of the early church is Maranatha, come. Mm -hmm. Lord Jesus. So we go from hiding in the bushes, terrified of the Lord's judgment upon us because of our guilty conscience, our shame, and our sin. We've been washed, and we have a clean conscience. And at the end of the book, at the end of the story, um, it's the, the cry is Maranatha, come, Lord Jesus. And come, Lord Jesus. This, this, um, you know, this speaks to really the whole, what Advent is all about. And even though we begin the season with these, um, these readings of judgment, when we read them, I call them ominous and terrifying. They, they are meant to kind of, you know, wake us up, of course. But if we love Christ, we're, we're looking forward to the day on one level, because we're going to yeah. be vindicated. And, right. and, and we are going to be ushered into the eternal kingdom. So we are not terrified like those who do not have faith. So even though we read these ominous passages, um, they still instill within us confidence um, and expectation. We are uh, expecting Christ with, with joy because we have oil in our lamps yeah. instead of... Uh, being being out and and needing some and having nowhere to buy it at the last 
moment. Yes, exactly. And that's another great advent. Yeah. So it, it's, it's another, it's another, I think, um, something interesting to contemplate as we go through this season. Um, we're told again and again that he is coming, right? But we don't know the hour of his coming. Hmm. So his coming is at hand, right? The whole, the whole message is be alert, watch and pray, have your lamps filled with oil. There is the certainty of his coming on the one hand, and yet there is the uncertainty um, of when he will come. Right. Uh, somebody said, I think this is a preacher from the first centuries of the church, said, quote, for nothing is more sure than death and nothing less sure than the hour of death. <laughs> when I read that, um, it really got me thinking about this because this becomes a major theme in the Gospels, and it's a major theme in Advent, that we are warned and warned and warned that he is coming. There's going to be a reckoning. Uh, we will reap what we sow. You know, this is, the Lord is just. Um, this is not all just make-believe. This isn't a fantasy. This is real, and there are consequences to loving or not loving God. Um, and yet, he keeps us, this is all hidden from us. Very mm -hmm. deliberately hidden. I mean, that the hiding of the knowledge of when he comes is a big part of the message. Um, and and Saint Ephraim um, speaks to this in a sermon. He's talking about when Christ is said, you know, it's not for you to know the times, right, of his coming. And and Saint Ephraim says he's kept those things hidden so that we may keep watch, each of us thinking that he will come in our own day. He says, if he had revealed the time of his coming, then his coming would have lost its savor. In other words, it would have lost its zing. Like if we knew he was coming, we could misbehave right up until the moment before he comes. And, and it, it loses its punch. Um, he says, it would no longer be an object of yearning for the nations. He promised that he would come, St. Ephraim says, but he did not say when he would come so that all generations and ages would await him eagerly. And, and he goes on to say something very interesting. He says that Christ told a sign, like the signs of his coming. He says, but the signs have been perpetual from the time he spoke, <laughs> spoke them. Like those signs, right. and I've often wondered this, you know, it's like every age could have claimed and does claim those signs. I mean, every mm -hmm. age says, Look, these signs match what Jesus said. He's going to be coming back any day now. Right. And, and Ephraim talks about this, and he says, because every age that, that we, every single age for all generations are supposed to think that he's coming in their day. So it's so fascinating that Ephraim writes this. It's so apropos for our time are the time in which we live because there, you know all the books and stuff about the end times and last times and people trying to predict the coming of the lord and and Ephraim suggests that um he he did this so that every age would it would instill in every age this watchfulness and this expectation this anticipation very interesting it um, is and and we've got um this season to to really 
instantiate that, to like to give expression of that general spiritual principle that we all ought to be living by. And this this season really sort of distills it so that we learn to and you know, if, and if we haven't been living that way, it it serves as a very useful reset. Um, it, and it's interesting too that this this preparation for us in the West is um, it takes it certainly has uh, the dual expectation for um, preparing yourself to adore Christ as the as the Bambino, but also preparing yourself to meet Christ in His coming in glory for the second time. And uh, so some of the themes that we have in our liturgics and, and, and hymnody um, are similar to what we encounter in the Eastern tradition in the bridegroom services um, before Pascha. And it's just an interesting, um, interesting distinction between Eastern and Western tradition there that um, most of our focus on the coming again of Christ happens in this fasting season Whereas in the Eastern tradition, um, a, a lot of that focus happens during the bridegroom services, specifically in the other fasting season. That's a really good. That's a really good observation. That's a good segue because it it takes me into um, sort of the next thing I wanted to talk about, um, and that is the actual sort of just briefly to go over some of the content of the passages, readings that we have in Proverbs and Matthews for the four Sundays in Advent. And I mentioned to you when we started, I had a little surprise for you um, because okay. there are there are four Sundays in Advent, right? So we have these four dedicated masses, um, Advent masses, but there's really six in a way. Okay, and this gets to that question you had: Is there a pre-Advent time period? Um, well, if we if we use Saint Martin's Mass as the, the, the for that pre-time, that's good. But the last Sunday in Pentecost, okay. Now, there, depending on how the calendar works out and when Easter is, um, there can there can there can be different number of Sundays after Pentecost. There can be twenty two Sundays after Pentecost, or be twenty four Sundays after Pentecost. And we have a specific mass propers for every Sunday after Pentecost. Mm-hmm. But no matter how many Sundays there are after Pentecost, if it just happens to land on the twenty third Sunday after Pentecost, doesn't matter. We always use the same mass. Proverbs for the last Sunday after Pentecost, no matter what. So, and, and it has another name. The last Sunday after Pentecost is also called the last Sunday before Advent. Mm-hmm. So its its name really is, this is like our, this week before the first Sunday in Advent is pre-Advent. And the... yes. So, so really that Sunday, you know, we can think of that Sunday as a little mini pre-advent right. and that following up. So if we add that Sunday in, and then if we add the Sunday of the vigil mass, which is on the Christmas Eve, but earlier in the day, we're still in advent at that. That's six, we have a total of six specific masses for advent. Um, okay, interesting. So let me just real quick, I'll be quick about this. I'll just run through um, some of the themes. So on the last Sunday before Advent, our gospel is from Matthew 24, and it concerns the great tribulation and the coming judgment. Very ominous 
kind of dark past, especially for those who don't love our Lord. Um, the first Sunday in Advent, the gospel is, it's a repeat, but it's from Luke's version of the coming judgment, Luke 21, 25 to 33. And again, we read about the judgment for two weeks in a row. The epistle uh, for the first Sunday Advent is from Romans chapter 13. And it's that portion that says, um, brethren, and that knowing the time, that now it is high time to awake out of sleep. For now is our salvation nearer than when we believed. The night is far spent. The day is at hand. Let us therefore cast off the works of darkness and let us put on the armor of light. So that's a great Advent passage, right? And that really sums up the spirit of Advent. Wake up, you know, get yourself ready. The, the time is at hand. And of course, that passage is, is, is a, a part of the burial office of laws. So we say that, you know, every day in laws. Um, the second, that's the first Sunday. Second Sunday in Advent. Um, is from Matthew 11, 2 through 10. And we're going to move past the judgment theme for right now a little bit, and we're going to go to the primary character besides, of course, our Lord and our Blessed Mother. The next most important character of this entire season is St. John the Baptist, the forerunner, who prepares, why? Because he prepares the way for the coming of Christ. Hmm. So he becomes... Which is exactly what we're trying to do. Yes. St. John the Baptist really becomes, I mean, our Blessed Mother and our Lord, of course, they come to the fore at Christmas at the Nativity Feast itself. But I would say St. John the Baptist really is the focal character for Advent, the season of Advent. And the next three Sundays are going to be gospel lessons focused on St. John. And after having preached these over many, many, over many years, you know, again and again, I have um, just developed such a, a love and a, an, an interest in, in St. John the Baptist in his role and how prominent and important he is. I think that, um, of course, in the, in the Orthodox Church, we, we get this and he gets a lot of attention. But in, in other parts of Christendom, um, he's, he's not given nearly the amount of attention that he should be given. Um, so the third Sunday in Advent, the Gospels from John 1, 19 to 28, and this is again the second passage with uh, St. John the Baptist. This is where he is questioned by the Jews, and he responds, I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness. And the epistle from the third Sunday in Advent is from Philippians, another great Advent passage. But listen, this third Sunday, so we're hearing the change of mood from fear, from judgment to joy. And it says, rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. Let your moderation be known unto all men. The Lord is at hand, right? So hmm. that's the third Sunday in Advent. That's where you get the invitatory that we're talking um, from Philippians. So we come finally to the last Sunday in Advent, the fourth Sunday in Advent, the Gospels from Luke chapter 3, 1 through 6. And again, this is the third passage um, with, with St. John the Baptist, the forerunner, friend of the bridegroom. And he, again, in this passage, crying out, prepare ye the way of the Lord, make his path straight. And the epistle from the fourth Sunday is from 1 Corinthians. And we return momentarily here to the judgment theme. Okay, so 
this is the way liturgy works. It sort of cycles back around a mm-hmm. lot of times. So right. right before we get to Christmas, we want one more reminder, <laughs> right? That there's going to be a reckoning. And, and St. Paul says, therefore, judge nothing before the time until the Lord come, who both will bring to light the hidden things of darkness and will make manifest the counsels of the hearts. And then shall every man have his praise of God. So it's a gentle reminder, you know, of the judgment, but it's bringing us back around to, you know, we're, we're, we're coming to the close of this season. The feast is upon us. Let's just make sure we got all our, everything, we're all ready. So the, the last Mass I mentioned, sixth Mass in this season, is the Christmas Eve Vigil Mass. So this happens, the first Mass of Christmas happens, you know, on the 24th at midnight, or some churches do a little bit. Um, but it's the evening Mass on the 24th. The Christmas Eve Vigil Mass happens earlier in the day. And... Um, it, it's it's a vigil mass. So people that don't understand vigil masses for us are penitential. You know, we have a Pentecost vigil. We have various vigils for major feasts. And vigil masses, they're always uh, days of fasting. Uh, we're inviolate. They're days of penitence. Okay. Um, but on this occasion, <laughs> for this vigil mass, and, and I just think it's so beautiful. Um the fasting and the violet and and all of that uh, is not fooling anybody, right? Because the joy <laughs> of the nativity is literally bursting at the seams. I mean, every prayer in this mass is you just can't heart hold it in. Um, there's just a few hours from now when we're going to be singing at the top of our lungs, "Joy to the world, uh, the Lord is come," and 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 you you pick this up on on all these prayers. Let me see. Uh, here it is. So, yeah, the, the introit begins, Today shall ye know that the Lord will come to deliver you, and at sunrise shall ye behold his glory. Um, the colic says, O God, who makest us glad with the yearly expectation of our redemption, vouchsafe that as we joyfully receive thine only begotten Son for our Redeemer, so we may with sure confidence behold him, when he shall come to be our judge, even Jesus Christ, thy son. Hmm. Um, the gospel is, well, the Alleluia, you mentioned the Alleluia, so we're back to that. Alleluia, Alleluia, on the morrow, the iniquity of the earth shall be done away, and the Savior of the world shall reign over us. Alleluia. Um, the offertory, lift up your heads, all ye gates, and be ye lift up ye everlasting doors, and the King of glory shall come in, um, and just on and on communion sentences, the glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see the salvation of our God. Now, remember, we're in purple. We're fasting. Mm-hmm. This is a right. penitential fast, right? <laughs> right. Yeah, I don't right. think so, right? It's not It's not fooling anybody. Um, yeah. And then the gospel lesson is uh, from uh, Matthew chapter 1, 18 to 21. And it's about how uh, the mother of Jesus, who was espoused Joseph, um, was found with child of the Holy Ghost. So we're we're getting a little, you know, into um in, into the christmas feast here but it's you know, really that's yeah that that's it's funny that you know that's the gospel lesson and you're talking about how it's it you're technically still in in this season of expectation and fasting and penitence but you're bursting at the seams almost as if the season itself is reflecting the growing pregnancy of mary who is found to be 
with child. And that's, you know, I keep going back to differences between Lent and Advent and Easter and Christmas. Uh, but with, with Lent, it, you, you get darker and, and darker, you know, with, as, as Holy Week goes on and Maundy Thursday, Good Friday, and then the lights go out, you know, it's, it's, <laughs> there's, there's this fasting and preparation for this, this dark moment, um, to, to our eyes, obviously Christ reigns victorious from the cross, um, from the cross, but, um, uh, it's there's there's not this swelling of the expectation of joy through Lent. It's the it's the really it's the preparation for the the hard hitting reality of the death and burial of God, and then suddenly light shines forth again. It's it's all of a sudden like there's mm-hmm. there's not this swelling, um, you know, overpouring after it has been almost bursting at the seams. It's just a sudden bright light that shines in the darkness, whereas in Advent, there is this growing expectation. It is swelling. We've, you know, we've got the the stories of the prophecies uh, pre the birth of Christ, talking about the expectation. We've got the concept of of Mary and her pregnancy after the Annunciation, where she becomes more and more pregnant. She's now found to be with child, <laughs> um, and so that's kind of. Uh, as an analogy, maybe, um, or, or possibly one of the the reasons why Advent has developed the character it has developed is because of the difference in the nature of what we're building up to. In in the case of Advent, Christmas Day, the birth of Christ, whereas in the case of Lent, um, the the holy you know three days of um, Monday, Thursday, Good Friday, and Holy Saturday, where then miraculously life triumphs. So this is just a different kind of, um, it's a different, the buildup is to a different kind of day. Christmas is similar in that light shines in the darkness when Christ is born into the, into this world, but it's, um, the preparation is different. And I think that's, that's, that's why I, um, am so in love with this season is because of the way that it prepares you when you follow along with it. It it helps your heart swell with Mary's womb. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's I love that. That's a great metaphor, actually, for the, the sort of the dynamics of the season. You know, as yeah. you were talking well, I, you know, it, it, it that it's it's the same, it's what you were talking about earlier with the, the different uh comings of, of Christ. Um you know, when Christ comes into our hearts, um it's you would expect there to be um uh, a similarity to the way Christ came in the flesh. Um, like why, why wouldn't our hearts, uh, swell to, to, to bursting in welcome and reception of Christ the way he grew in Mary's womb? Why can't he grow in our hearts as well? Well, you so, know, anyway, I'm sorry. Like, I, I cut no, you off. that's, that's wonderful. Thank you. I, I, I really, I really enjoyed hearing that. Good. You know, as you were talking, I think, I think people are interested in sort of devotional people have asked, what kinds of things can we do? Small tea traditions, you know, customs and devotions mm-hmm. that we can do to help us prepare. So, yeah, I, a lot of people um, who are new to Advent or would like to um, maybe have some, you know, devotions to practice to get ready for the Feast of Nativity. Um, there's things you can do and that are traditional and, um, you know, that are beautiful and perfectly consonant with our faith. Um, many people have heard of an Advent wreath, 
you know, this is not an ancient uh, thing, but that's okay. It's a beautiful thing that families can do um, at home. And churches sometimes will have an Advent wreath. I think some Eastern Rite churches even uh, use an Advent wreath. Um, we have one at St. Patrick's. It's not a part of the liturgy. So we don't really make um, sort of a liturgical ceremonial thing out of lighting it. Um, ours hangs from our Koros chandelier. So it's actually really beautiful where it is, mm. but it's just subtly there. And yep. um, it's it's a wreath um, with uh, four candles uh, and for each Sunday in Advent. And typically three of the candles will be violet or purple. And then one of the candles will be rose. And you would light a candle, you know, for each week as you're going through um, the season of Advent. But a lot of people, it's very popular for people to have an Advent wreath at home. And um, in we the have e one at our home. Yeah. I mean, so many of us do. Extremely popular. And so every night, um, you know, at dinner or at the end of dinner, we'll uh, light the appropriate candle. Um, and as you light the candles, if it's the second week, you light two candles. So third mm -hmm, week, you have mm -hmm. three candles. Um, they'll light the candle and then they'll do some read. We have a booklet, like we've produced a booklet at St. Patrick's. I'm sure others have as well that are made up of, uh, old Testament, um, prophecies, uh, Christological prophecies, the coming of Christ, and then prayers taken from the services of the church during this season. Um, and then they can sing a verse from O Come, O Come, Emmanuel, which is, um, you know, basically the text for the O Antiphons, which are very, beautiful and important liturgical hymns um, in the church for this season. Um, so so having a devotion each night with the family around the Advent wreath is, is a great thing. Yeah. And, and so some of the, for example, some of the, the prayers and um, verses and, and such that, that we would be doing week to week, what, is, what are those that you include in your book? I assume like the, the collect for each Sunday. Yeah, so there's there's the collect I'm trying to find here. Maybe some verses from the the matins or some of the offices. But yeah, so there's different verses from the some of the antiphons um, from from the office. So yeah, so we would pull some of the antiphons from the the office, some of the collects from the mass okay. settings. Yeah. Um, you know, our Father, Hail Mary, those sorts of things. Yep. Like versicle response, for example, it opens up the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare ye the way of the Lord. The response is make his path straight. So these are things that are pulled from the daily, the divine office. Uh, we also have uh, readings, like I said, from Seah, various things, but then we have reflections from the fathers. So there's lots hmm. of sermons, lots of Advent sermons, St. Leo the Great, St. Peter Chrysologus, uh, who, by the way, he's the golden mouth of the West. Um, mm -hmm. Great preacher in the West. Um but uh, readings, reflections, prayers, antiphons, canticles, and it's just a great, you know, um, devotional booklet for families. And we have something for every single day. That's wonderful. So there's that. And um, of course, we pay, I know, I know St. Nicholas is very much beloved in, in, in our church, and we all do special things on St. Nicholas Day, um, but that falls within the season of Advent. Um, there's also the setting up of a creche uh, at home. You can We do this at church, but you can also set up a creche, a nativity scene at home. And um, one of the things that I think is traditional to do is the Magi, so the, the three kings, um, my kids would, throughout the entire season, 
they would have the three kings moving throughout the house, right? So every few days, they would move them a little bit closer to the crash so that they would end up there on January 6th. I like that better than Elf on a Shelf. Yeah. <laughs> so so that's always something fun uh, to do. And we're always wondering where they have the three kings, but they're moving them throughout the house, getting closer and closer to the crash. Um, nice. You know, in our house, we... We set up our tree, um, but we don't decorate it until, you know, like the week before Christmas or something. We kind of hold off. And that's another mm-hmm. big cultural thing that we encourage our people to really let Advent be Advent and let Christmas be Christmas. Mm-hmm. And um, try not to get too wrapped up in the Christmas <laughs> season during Advent. Um, yeah. And well, it, that's, that's you know, an interesting... We, we do have, I, I think the Western right has a special relationship to um, being ambassadors for the Orthodox faith in our culture, given the, the, the shared overlapping customs that Western right Orthodoxy and our even secular culture both know about. So, you know, the, um, some of the, cultural traditions of, of Christmas and everything obviously comes from Western Christianity. So I think uh, in the West, we have a uh, sort of a, a special way to um, engage with the culture around us and show them the the truth of the Orthodox faith. And Advent is a, a really special season, I think, um, in terms of an opportunity to do that. I've noticed um, that Christians all around are have been over the last decade or two rediscovering advent the concept the season um so i mean very you know low church protestants are now um marking advent in some way or another i grew up southern baptist Mm -hmm. uh, and we never (laughs) had anything uh the the term advent as relating to a season is never something i remember hearing but i I believe now in that church it, it is something that is um that's observed. And I, I mean, that's remarkable to me. That's yeah. just fantastic. And so it's, you know, there's, we have all kinds of opportunities to, to say, great, this absolutely right. Christmas is, um, I think there's a rebellion maybe <laughs> against sort of the unbridled Uber, um, commercialization of Christmas and how it has just taken over the airwaves, taken over the storefronts, taken over everything and is in your face and December 25th at 3 PM, it has all disappeared. Yeah. And Advent, I think among Christians of much tradition or very little is, is a, a, a sort of a salvation from that. And so with, you know, our, our full expression of the, the ancient venerable Christian Western tradition um, among our vicariate, we have a real opportunity, I think, to speak into that that desire of people to distance themselves from the Christmas gone awry, run amok, and uh, and and recovering the season of Advent. So I I welcome it. I, I look forward to more and more people um, becoming familiar with the concept of Advent. And the more that happens, the more I hope that we are prepared to to step in and and show how to really do it well. You know, I, I, I think not to be too optimistic, but I, there's there's somewhat of a grassroots revolt against consumerism. I mean, people are realizing how bankrupt 
consumerism and materialism is. Some people, a lot of people. Mm-hmm. And and you were talking about this, and they're 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 looking for something more meaningful, a more meaningful life. And I think I think you're onto something. I think that um, we can use this as an opportunity in our conversations with people that we meet that are close to us, maybe inviting them to church to maybe they can tap into Advent as an opportunity to reject, you know, this sort of consumeristic, materialistic, you know, um, culture and try and search for something more meaningful that then results in a real joy, a spiritual joy uh, of Christmas. And, you know, I think we can tap into something that people are longing for. And that, I mean, I know that I, you know, I love evangelism. So when I'm out eating dinner or just out in public, I talk to people all the time about Christ and God and the meaning of life and all that. So I have no problem talking to people about, you know, people are about Advent, Christmas right. in the public square. And it's amazing how interested people are in these things. I mean, if you know Absolutely. how to ask the right questions and sort of tickle them, their ears a little bit, they, they'll open up and they'll want to talk about things. One of, I would say one of the most beloved things that we do um, all year long, it's not even a, technically a liturgical service. It is a service, but it's not a liturgical But our people love lessons and carols. Absolutely. As much as anything we do all year. Yep. Um, it, it is it's wonderful. So meaningful, so beautiful, so helpful to prepare uh, for Christmas. And and we just get we get we've developed a culture here in our in our area where people a lot of people come, and and they invite friends they invite neighbors and and we're usually packed for lessons and carols, um, and it's really a great entry point for people who maybe aren't orthodox to come and experience something like this. And it's not Christmassy at all. I mean, it's all about Advent. It's all mm-hmm. preparation, yep. and they they. People that aren't expecting that, they might be expecting some kind of a Christmas concert, and that's not what it is. It's right. the readings from the prophets and these prayers of penitence and expectation, and yeah. um, it's been very moving to a lot of people. Yeah, it, you know, it's almost a distillation of all of sort of the themes of Advent um, into a handful of readings and hymns that sort of are themselves they tend to be distillations of themes. They they really put a fine point on, um, you know, what what's a little more um, uh, spread out and and deep dives through the liturgical services. A hymn has has the you know benefit opportunity of putting a lot of those themes into five verses that rhyme yeah. <laughs> uh, with music that that tends to um, stick in your soul. And so, yeah, th- these services can be absolutely gorgeous, beautiful uh, ways. They they really are, like you said, um, e- they can be evangelical oh, very um, services. They can they can be meeting points for mm-hmm. uh, those who aren't a part of the church to to see like what Advent, um, not Christmas. What does that mean? Come to lessons and carols, and you will get the point. Yeah, and it, we've experienced this with lots of people. I mean, it's been very successful. Um, well, some other things, um, just a couple other things that are typical to the season. Um, there's a novena. Um, it's in the St. Ambrose prayer book. Um, and novena nine, novena, um, 
reference to the number nine. So nine days beginning on December 16th, there's mm-hmm. um, a few short prayers. And these uh, the prayers each day are based, based on the O antiphons. But uh, we do this at St. Patrick's, and a lot of people, we hand this out. People pray a novena in preparation for uh, Christmas. A novi- the idea of praying a novena comes from actually the, the Pentecost. <laughs> comes from mm-hmm. them being mm-hmm. in the upper room, preparing, praying, for and waiting days. for the spending of the Holy Spirit. So that's where the novena idea comes from. We have novenas for various things, which are just ways of praying and preparing for an upcoming great feast of some sort. Um, the other thing that um, we, we do is we do a Rorate Mass, uh, which is absolutely just one of my favorite things we do. Um, the Rorate Mass, uh, Rorate comes from the introit from the Mass, drop down ye heavens from above. And it's a votive Mass of the Blessed Virgin Mary. And mm-hmm. the Mass is done um, before daybreak. So ours is, at this time of year, um, we, we do ours at 6 a.m. And there's no lights in the church. Uh, nothing's turned on. Everything's candles. And the entire church is filled with candles. And um, people get up early. and They come to this Rorate Mass. And it's just the whole atmosphere of the season. And, of course, we love, <laughs> we love our Blessed Mother so much. And the season of Advent just deepens and renews our love for her. And these Rorate Masses are a big part of that. So we, we have five Rorate Masses scheduled uh, for the season of Advent. Okay. Some during the week, some on Saturday. And we'll usually get a pretty good turnout, sometimes a very good turnout. Um, people will come before work or whatever. And these are beautiful, beautiful uh, Masses. And then the, the Nativity Vigil Mass, you know, we're getting, so we, we go to church. We have our first Christmas Mass on um, the eve, you know, the 24th, around midnight. We start around 10 p.m. Um, and then we come back the next day and have Mass again at 10 in the morning. So we have two Christmas Masses. And, um, but we also have that Vigil Mass the morning mm-hmm. of the 24th. And, you know, this is the last chance, you know, liturgically, um, the last chance you've got to kind of like, Get your your last Advent, get your Advent in season, yeah. in, you know, um, service yeah. in, and and so I, you know, I think the people that come and participate make the effort to come out to all of those masses really benefit uh, yeah, from absolutely. it, and they're, and they're glad that they're there. So these are some things. There's other stuff. There's an Advent yeah. calendar that some people use. What one thing is there they, are the plays, um, um, you know, Christmas plays, Advent plays. Um, people yep. might think this was just some cute British thing. There is a <laughs> very ancient tradition. Uh, of elaborate um, plays being done um, from early medieval times. I just picked up a a very antiquated um, volume on this, um, which is fascinating, uh, Hmm. on on these early medieval plays during the season of Advent. So um, that's a great tradition and something the kids can be involved in. I love, I mean, there there are other, you know, opportunities for kids um, to dress up and, and things there's you mentioned saint nicholas day you can always have a um a saint nicholas come and and distribute gifts to children um there's the uh santa lucia there's saint lucy's day yes, which yes. is really big in scandinavian countries um it it really 
sort of uh, plays on the in the northern hemisphere, especially in the northern northern countries of Scandinavia. There's a big deal about the darkness of winter um, being turning the the tide and being penetrated by the the new dawn, the light of of Christ. I'm, I'm glad um, you mentioned that because we <laughs> sorry to interrupt. Yeah. We, we have a relic of Saint Lucy, and ah. uh, and we have a little girl in our town uh, whose name is Lucy. And oh, wow. so St. Lucy is very special to our parish, and um, we make a big deal out of it. We always have mass on St. Lucy's Day, so we venerate the relic. And then yeah. Lucy comes with her crown, because there's Lucy's crown, and then she makes these special cookies, which are associated with the feast. And she has a big basket of these cookies, and she hands them out. So, yeah, we, we right. do that at St. Patrick's. That's brilliant. We make yeah. Feel that's Patrick's. wonderful. Yeah, and that's another, you know, there's so many, so many, it's so multifaceted, so rich Advent is. But um, the, the themes of winter and darkness um, turning to uh, warmth and, and light is obviously a big one during Advent. Um, there's Jesse trees. It's something we do at our parish, actually. We set up a... Uh, a Christmas tree, you know, a, a pine in, in the church. Um, and we uh, decorate it with small icons of the um, ancestors, or at least the forerunners of Christ from figures from the Old Testament. Mm. And, um, you know, this this figure of the Jesse tree comes from some of the antiphons that we hear in Advent, where uh, the, the prophecy in Isaiah, again, about a uh, the the root of Jesse, a, a shoot out of the stem of Jesse, uh, shooting up and a flower coming from that that stem. And uh, the church has interpreted this. Ambrose lays it out clearly. And he's like, uh, the 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 branch is the the main branch is the household of of the Jews. The the stem is Mary, and the flower is Christ. And so there's this image of Jesse, the father of King David. Um, as sort of the the beginning of this this Davidic line that Christ eventually comes out of, but it's it's a broader, uh, more encompassing uh, image that really just includes all of the the ancestors of Christ, which is a theme again in the in the Eastern tradition. The ancestors of Christ are um, brought up in in the services and and you know, sort of trotted out, and, and they're they're looked at person by person. I don't think that's, it's not done quite as explicitly in our Western liturgics, right. but the idea is certainly there. And so we, we make use of that idea with our, our tree and our um, Christ ancestors and their icons kind of going up the tree until at the very top is an icon of, of the blessed Virgin Mary holding the, the Christ child. So that's, that's something we do at our church as oh, a little great. tradition. And I'm sure you uh, can online you can find, you know, Oh, absolutely. And there, and there's, ah, there's such a rich, um, you can go on and, and Google images of, of Jesse tree imagery and it's just throughout, um, cathedrals across the West and stained glass in, uh, carvings and friezes and paintings and frescoes and, uh, illuminated manuscripts. It's just beautiful imagery. I love it. That's I great. love it. So, and then of course I, I, we, we can't talk about, Advent and Advent traditions and liturgics without mentioning the O antiphons for the the seven days preceding Christmas Eve, which are these um, very ancient poetic antiphons attached to the Magnificat, the Song of Mary, sung at Vespers on uh, on those 
days, seven days leading up to Christmas Eve. And there's um, some very rich imagery in those antiphons as well. Um, so my, my parish has actually made a, we've made a series of videos kind of exploring each antiphon and all the Which are excellent, wisdom and, excellent by the way. Those videos thank you. Right. Wisdom and theology packed into those. So they're, they're, that's another beautiful, um, um, beautiful feature of Advent. And, and the, the traditional melodies to those Advent, uh, to those antiphons are, you know, they, they inform a lot of other music that gets written for mm-hmm. Advent, kind of like the, the DS melody informs a lot of, of yeah. other music. And, and, you know, sometimes certain, uh, really, really pivotal bits of, of music and poetry in the liturgy will get reused, uh, taken up into other pieces of music. And the antiphons, the O antiphons are one example of that. Um, I, I can nerd out on those a little bit because I <laughs> find them so fascinating. So I'll stop there. But I did want to mention those before we, we got to the end of this. Well, I hope I hope this was all helpful to somebody um, or interesting, at least. I think it will be. Yeah, there's there's just so much to learn. Obviously, it's the kind of uh, thing that you have to experience. And like you said, the more you, you know, year by year as you experience it, the richer it becomes. So this is um, just an introduction to some of the ideas. If, uh, you know, maybe some Eastern Rite uh, Orthodox brothers and sisters are listening or uh, someone else who uh, doesn't come from any kind of traditional Christian background doesn't know anything about this. This is, um, it's, it's an introduction, but the way to really experience it is by, you know, well, come find a, a Western Rite Orthodox parish and, and come join us. <laughs> yeah. yeah, there's That's no, the su- no substitute for, for actually praying. <laughs> in absolutely walking these things out it's really and this will this season will teach you how to pray um in expectation of the coming of christ um how many times if if you prayed uh all all the services of the church from the beginning of advent to the end of christmas eve how many times you would pray come lord um i have no idea that would be a fun um project for someone to to go and count, <laughs> but it's, it's going to be a lot. And so that's, it is definitely a season that helps you prepare your heart for the coming of Christ. Thank you. That's very good. Well, thank you so much for walking us through all of that. You taught me some stuff for sure. There, there's uh, so much about the the history of Advent that I didn't, I didn't know about. I'm eager to follow up on some of that and, and do some more research and, and learn more. Um, and of course your experience as, um, a priest and and pastor having gone through this and prayed the services and, and, uh, pastored people on their way through this season as well is, uh, invaluable. So thank you so much for joining me and, uh, talking us through all this. Thank you, Stephen. I really appreciate the invitation. Absolutely. And, uh, I look forward to doing it again sooner rather than later. Anytime. Oh